crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctigal. I'm coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel. I want to talk to you today about Iran and a specific leader in Iran and outside of Iran that wields considerable power and is reshaping the Middle East as we know it. Now, this man is Qassam Soleimani. You may have heard of him. I'm sure you have heard of him. He has come into fame, I would say, over the last couple of years as a deliberate attempt by the Iranian regime to make him more visible. But he has been behind the scenes working for the past 40 years since the Iranian revolution took place. He was just 22 at the time. He actually turns 62 tomorrow on March 11th. But ever since that time, he has been working to establish the Iranian regime's hold over the region. And we have seen territorial gains slowly take place by Iran in the past 40 years, accelerating in the past decade, largely because of the maneuverings and the funds accessible to him uh, of this man. He is the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, Quds Force. This is the force that acts outside the nation of Iran. It, of course, preserves the regime inside Iran, but then it says it preserves the regime by offensive action, offensive action through the Middle East. It has proxies um, that act on its behalf and take its orders from them, That the largest one of those being Hezbollah, uh, one of the the great powers in Lebanon, the great power in Lebanon, I should say, in southern Lebanon, that is used by the Iranian regime to threaten Israel. They get their power, and they were established by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they largely act right now uh, under the direction of Qassam Soleimani. You also have the Shiite militias, many of them that are fighting with the Assad regime still to this day inside Syria, and the Shiite militias that are fighting uh, the remnants of the Islamic State and that are also now part of the official Iraqi government. They answer in large part to Qassam Soleimani. You also have the Iranian-backed uh, Houthi movement in Yemen, who received their arms and training by the Quds Force, by the IRGC, and largely they are directed again by Qassam Soleimani. Now, we live in an age where we are taught history different than it's been taught in times past. We are taught history that it is oftentimes now the unfolding of inevitabilities, of vast impersonal forces we aren't talk about we we aren't taught about how great individuals have the ability to dictate and turn world events yet as we study history really that's what we see this is what george will wrote in his column in the washington post back in 2001 he said this the role of contingency in history is disparaged so students are inoculated against the undemocratic notion that history can be turned in its course by great individuals and i would argue today we have history in the middle east being turned on its course by a great 
individual, a great individual, Qasem Soleimani, while we're not talking necessarily about uh, him being an individual that is organizing events and moving events for good, he is nevertheless a great individual. My wife is um, currently reading Andrew Roberts' book, uh, Napoleon the Great, and I just grabbed it off her bedside the other day, and I I went straight to the back and, and read his conclusion. And this is what he said about Napoleon. He said, Napoleon was thus not some nemesis doomed monster, a modern exemplar of ancient Greek drama, or any of the dozens his, dozens of historical constructions that have been thrust upon him. Rather, Napoleon's life and career stand as a rebuke to the determinist analyses of history, which explain events in terms of vast impersonal forces and minimize the part played by individuals. That's at the end of his massive work about Napoleon showing that vast impersonal forces do not determine history. It is, uh, there is a, a huge part that is played by individuals. And we see this taking place all over the world right now. We're actually living through a time where strong leadership is becoming more essential and an obvious tool of national power. The levers of international power right now are in the hands of a few. Strong men exist across the planet. Uh, in Russia, we have Putin. China has Xi. Japan, Japan has Abe. Turkey has Erdogan. Egypt has Sisi. Saudi Arabia has Mohammed bin Salman. And Iran has the Ayatollah, of course. But underneath the Ayatollah, and answering directly to the Ayatollah, and overseeing Iran's rise across the Middle East is Qasem Soleimani. Now, the Bible talks about events um, in our day in terms of kings, kings having power. Daniel chapter 11 talks about many kings. It talks about the kings in the east. It talks about a king of the north. It also talks about a king of the south. And today I want to talk about this individual, Qasem Soleimani. That has... um, largely been equipping this king of the south with the ability to mobilize forces across the Middle East. He's been on the battlefield directing war so that Iran can gain power slowly but surely. In the face of the time when the United States was most heavily involved in the Middle East. We have spoken about on this program how this king of the south Um, is Iran as it leads the radical Islamist camp. And this king of the south, uh, based on the prophecies in the book of Daniel, is going to be the most pushy international actor on the world scene. And the Bible indicates that it, this king of the south, will um, control nations, not just Iran. As I said, this man, uh, Qasem Soleimani, he's been... Uh, orchestrating the territorial gains of Iran over the past 30 years. While he's not the boss in Iran, he reports directly to him, the Ayatollah. He oversees the terrorist activity, the foreign deployments of Iran's proxies, as I've said. He's got a a strong list of successes. Um, He was implicated as in the murder of Rafiq Hariri of Lebanon in the middle of the 2000s. There were four uh, Hezbollah officials that were convicted of that that have since disappeared, um, uh, well, have just off the radar. 
But behind them is most likely uh, Qassem Soleimani that murdered the Prime Minister of Lebanon in the mid-2000s. He also oversaw the policy of attacking U.S. forces uh, in the Iraqi deployment through the middle of the 2000s. He's also responsible for the induction of al-Maliki as Prime Minister of Iraq back then. And he's largely responsible for the maneuvering of the Iraqi parliament right now so that they have a prime minister. And he is largely, again, responsible for the survival of the Assad regime in Syria. And my attention was was drawn to this man uh, because of the aura surrounding his leadership that is so often respected and hated by Iran's enemies. Everyone you talk to or how you read about him, the generals that have faced up against him, uh, mostly from the United States, have spoken about how effective and efficient he is as a military commander. This latest piece that was written about him was written by General Stanley McChrystal. He was the commander of the U.S. NATO forces in Afghanistan in 2009. Uh, in 2010, I believe, and he was the Joint Special Operations Command leader from 2003 to 2008. So he's intimately aware of Qassam Soleimani, and he wrote an article about him in the latest issue of Foreign Policy. And this is how he begins his piece. He says, the decision not to act is often the hardest one to make, and it isn't always right. In 2007, I watched a string of vehicles pass from Iran into northern Iraq. I'd been serving as the head of the U.S. military's Joint Special Operations Command for four years, working to stem the terrorism that had devastated the region, and I'd become accustomed to making tough choices. But on that January night, the choice was particularly tricky, whether or not to attack a convoy that included Qassam Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite guard, elite guard corps force, an organization roughly analogous analogous to the combination of the CIA and the JSOC in the United States. There was good reason to eliminate Soleimani. At the time, Iranian-made roadside bombs built and deployed at his command were claiming the lives of U.S. troops across Iraq. 20% of U.S. forces actually in Iraq died this way because of these explosive devices that were largely made, constructed by, by Iranian-backed proxies, that were led by Qassam Soleimani, directed by him. He continues, But to avoid a firefight and the contentious politics that would follow, I decided that we should monitor the caravan and not strike immediately. And by the time the convoy had reached Erbil, which is um, in Kurdish territory up in northern Iraq, Soleimani had slipped away into the darkness. So for whatever reason... Um, he decided not to attack at that point to take out Soleimani. There was another leader of Iran's forces inside that um, inside that convoy, and there were there were uh, there was a relationship between Iran and the United States on and off. At that point, um, sometimes their goals were aligned, sometimes they weren't. But at this point, Iran was killing U.S. forces in Iraq. And McChrystal decided that he decided at that moment not to attack and take out Soleimani. And he's implying in this piece that that was a bad decision. Looking at what Soleimani has been able to achieve uh, from the time since, back in 2007. Now, Soleimani 
He's not simply a soldier. He is a calculating, practical strategist. That's what uh, McChrystal wrote. Now, as I said, he turns 62 tomorrow, um, but he didn't just come out of nowhere. He was he was an effective tool in the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, he was an effective tool in the revolution as well. I mean, that began just after his 22nd birthday, just before his 22nd birthday, and immediately he joined up uh, into the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. This was established just after the revolution. It was used initially to tap down the, the dissent internally, and he has raised through the ranks for the past 40 years, amassing more and more decision-making power through these successes that he's been able to achieve on the battlefield. Dexter Filkins wrote a wonderful biography of him in September 2013, and it was published in the, in the uh, New Yorker under the title The Shadow Commander. This is what he wrote about the early life of Soleimani. He says, Soleimani was Soleimani was born in Raybor, an impoverished mountain village in eastern Iraq. When he was a boy, his father, like many other farmers, took out an agricultural loan from the government of the Shah. He owed 900 toman, about $100 at the time, and couldn't pay it back. In a brief memoir, Soleimani wrote of leaving home with a young relative named Ahmad, who was in a similar situation. Quote Soleimani now, At night, we couldn't fall asleep with the sadness of thinking that government agents were coming to arrest our fathers, he wrote. And so together, they traveled to Kerman, the nearest city, to try and clear their family's debt. And that place was unwelcoming, he said, quote, We were only 13 and our bodies were so tiny, wherever we went, they wouldn't hire us. Until one day, when we were hired as laborers at at a school construction site on Kajul Street. They paid us two toman per day. And so, after eight months, they had saved enough money to take that money home and to uh, restore their father or take away the debt of their father or his father. And so, you can see from even a young age of 13, he was independent. Um, and he this, this instance really didn't lo- develop love uh, for the Iranian government because he was worried. He was worried that the government would come and take away his father's farm, and so he acted to try and stop that. Now, his teenage years don't seem too eventful. He only has a high school education. Apparently, he used to lift a lot of weights in local gyms. During Ramadan, he attended sermons by a traveling preacher, one of the protege of of the current Ayatollah. And then, of course, the the, um, Islamic Revolution took place shortly thereafter when he was 22, and after joining the IRGC, he went to the north, fought against the Kurds for a while, and then it was just a year and a half after that that uh, Saddam Hussein invaded, and Soleimani participated in that war. At the very beginning of that, he entered the war, he said, on a quick 15-day mission, and he ended up staying there till the end. Now, his first mission was just to supply water to the soldiers at the front, but when he got there, he never left. And of course, over time, the... Um, the operational duties for Soleimani increased. Uh, he gained a reputation for bravery. This is what Filkins writes about this time. He says, especially as a result of reconnaissance missions he undertook behind Iraqi lines. He returned from several missions bearing a goat, which his soldiers slaughtered and grilled. Quote, even the Iraqis, our enemy, admired him for this. End quote. A former Revolutionary Guard officer who defected to the United States told him, 
On Iraqi radio, Soleimani became known as the Goat Thief. In recognition of his effectiveness, he was put in charge of a brigade from Kerman with the men from the gyms where he had lifted weights. And so he acted in command of that group um, through a lot of the, the Iran-Iraq war. Then fast forwarding to just 1998, that's when he became the leader of the Quds Force. And by that time, established himself as a dynamic leader and strategist uh, and commander for, for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And this was well known back in 2001 through 2003 that Qassam Soleimani was largely overseeing Iran's policy in Iraq and Afghanistan. And at the very initial time, it seems that the Iranians were worried that the U.S. may invade uh, Iran um, after, after Iraq. Uh, and so the Iranians and the Americans actually worked together in partly in Afghanistan against the Taliban and partly against Saddam Hussein and the remnants uh, of of Saddam Hussein's regime, as well as some of the insurgents that took that were operable after that time as well. Now, in two thousand and eight, he actually sent a text message to General Petraeus, who was in charge of the American forces there in Iraq and others. And this is what Soleimani said in this text message: "Dear General Petraeus." You should know that I, Qassam Soleimani, control the policy for Iran with respect to Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza, and Afghanistan. And indeed, the ambassador in Baghdad is a Quds Force member, and the individual who's going to replace him is a Quds Force member. And so, of course, um, the United States was hoping to make a transition here with the government uh, in Iraq over to a democratic, democratic state. But he was going to make sure, Qassam Soleimani, that it was understood that Iran would have a foothold in that nation. And we have seen this increase. General Petraeus is gone. America's only got 5,000 troops left. And we have Iranian entrenchment in Iraq to this day, as still led and directed by Qassam Soleimani. Now, this... Um, this influence by Soleimani has obviously leaked over into Syria, um, the Syrian civil war beginning in the end of 2011, and Syria being just an incredibly important uh, access point and conduit for Iran to access the Mediterranean Sea and support Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, more of its ambition. And Soleimani was very dedicated from the beginning to supporting the Syrian regime. And actually, at the very beginning of the civil war, uh, Soleimani was incensed with the way that Assad was ruling and leading the military. And so he came over there and basically started to take control of things. And he invited Hezbollah to come across the border in 2012 and preserve the Syrian regime, fight against them, and they did that. Hassan Nasrallah did that, obviously. He also led thousands of Afghani Shiites into Syria as well to fight for them. This is what uh, Dexter Filkins writes about this time. He said, To save Assad, Soleimani had called on every asset he built since taking over the Quds Force, Hezbollah fighters, Shiite militiamen from around the Arab world, and all the money and material he could squeeze out of his own besieged government. Soleimani's greatest achievement, this was written in 2013, so there's probably some other great ones after this, but he said up to this point, his greatest achievement may have been persuading his proxies in the Iraqi government to allow Iran to use its airspace to fly men and munitions into Damascus. So you see how powerful this, this individual is. I mean, he can persuade people inside the Iraqi government to help Iran 
use Iraqi airspace to fly directly to over uh, to Damascus to support the Assad regime. Now, it was around this time that we actually became very much aware of Qassam Soleimani. It's probably the first time I really uh, studied into him or, or read much about him. And that was because there was a deliberate choice by the Iranian government around 2014 in September to start showing Soleimani on the battlefield in Syria, to start showing him on, on close to the border of Israel and even in Iraq. They wanted to make this public. Now, there is some debate as to why they did this. Um, uh, I've got a book here by Ash, Afshan Ostevar. He wrote Vanguard of the Imam, talking about the running Revolutionary Guard Corps. And he talks about how there was some type of policy to try and remove Qassam Soleimani by some people inside the Iranian government. And this obviously was rebuffed. And to show that it was rebuffed, they wanted everyone to know how successful Soleimani had been. This is what he writes on page 226 of his book. He says, in response to the rumors or actual behind-the-scenes maneuvering against Soleimani, a sudden, almost guerrilla public relations campaign emerged with the Quds Force chief as its star. Beginning in September 2014, photographs of Soleimani in the field in Iraq began to be leaked on social media. The images were initially circulated on Facebook pages associated with Iraq's Shiite militias, but quickly spread. The pictures depicted him with Shiite and Peshmerga commanders, that is, the Kurdish forces, especially the Badak organization uh, head, Al-Amiri, who is a big friend um, of, of Qassam Soleimani, who actually fought alongside him in the, in the uh, Iran-Iraq war inside Iraq. Others showed him holding firearms, having picnics, praying, shaking hands, and smiling with troops on the front lines. Soleimani was almost always shown in the same uniform, khaki pants, khaki sports cap, black and white uh, kafia, I'm not sure what that is, and khaki shoes. Sometimes he wore a jacket. Combined with his slight stature, he is quite small, the simple attire gave Soleimani the appearance of a humble, unassuming man. He had an avuncular qualities, a quality that made him seem a man of the people without detracting from his innate authority. The images became so ubiquitous that a meme developed on social media depicting Soleimani in all sorts of places, with all sorts of people. Soleimani shaking hands with an astronaut on the moon, Soleimani seated behind Jacqueline Kennedy in the presidential motorcade, Soleimani as an attendee along with Albert Einstein and other Nobel laureates of the 1927 Solvay Conference. His personage had gone from relative obscurity to fringe internet cultural phenomenon in a matter of weeks. Gradually, the photos of Soleimani in Iraq began to be picked up by Iranian media as evidence of his exploits, something that suggested his public relations campaign had become officially endorsed, sorry, endorsed by Iranian officialdom. Now, this is really interesting. Up until this point, we hadn't seen much of Qassam Soleimani been talked about. And then here he was, everywhere, everywhere. And wherever you saw him on the battlefield, this wasn't just a PR campaign in the sense that he takes a snap and he leaves. No, he was actually directing the fight, directing the battle. He, he, he became uh, well, appearances on social media in the location of certain battles um, by Soleimani were quickly thereafter victories. For the Iranian side, known victories. He was having success, and that success was being promulgated in Iran also. This is what he continues to write. 
in this text. This was all incredibly unusual. Prior to the Syrian conflict, Soleimani had maintained a very private profile. He was the leader of Iran's main, main covert force, and his image fit that role. He was described as a shadowy, mysterious, and master spy. Only a few photographs were even available of him. So the sudden release of dozens of photos over a few months was entirely out of character and appeared to be a very deliberate public relations effort, one seemingly spearheaded by Soleimani's team and later embraced by Iranian officials. Any rumors of Soleimani's demise as Iran's man in Iraq were being instantly and repeatedly repudiated with photographic evidence. Beyond that, a more profound message was being sent. Soleimani, and by extension Iran, was doing more than any other to assist Iraq. He was literally on the ground, at the front lines, overseeing battles. He was the linchpin, bringing together Shia and Kurdish forces to fight a common enemy, that is the Islamic State. When others hesitated, Soleimani acted. He was now more than just a spy chief or organizer of militias. He was the single most important military commander in an international war. He was... Now, you might not have heard about him in the fight against the Islamic State, but he was the single most important military commander in this international war. Something of a mix between Che Guevara and Douglas MacArthur, he writes. The same Soleimani who was rebuffed by David Petraeus in 2008 was now essentially occupying the same role as the American general six years later. He was an equal to America's top commander, Iran was a military power, and the world needed to know. Now, it's very interesting the way that he puts this there. The fact that a few years after America's drawdown of troops, and you have Iran running the show, and Qassam Soleimani is there being that man, being that effective force, and it's being publicized. Now, it wasn't shortly after this, uh, when things did turn for the worse inside Syria, in the Syrian regime, uh, for the Syrian regime, who is, of course, an ally of the Iranians. And it was Qassam Soleimani that was called in to help there to rectify the situation. And knowing what the battlefield looked like, he, obviously um, getting approval by the Ayatollah, uh, he flew up to Moscow. He flew up to Moscow and met directly with Putin and talked about how Putin needs to come and help Help the fight to preserve the Assad regime. Russia obviously has assets in that country as well. And Putin, uh, after a meeting with just an envoy before Soleimani came, Putin actually said, okay, we will help send Qassam Soleimani. President Putin of Russia knows that Qassam Soleimani is the battlefield general that gets things done. I want him in my office. I want him unrolling the maps, showing me how we are going to contribute to this fight. And so in June, he does that. In late June, at the end of September, we have Russian jets over the skies in Syria, completely changing the face of the Syrian civil war in support of Assad. And who was at the heart of it? Again, it was Qassam Soleimani. Now, Qassam Soleimani is still around. Most recently, he was going toe-to-toe, I guess, on Twitter uh, against the pres- President Trump, telling him to direct the direct the threats against Iran to him and he will deal with it don't if you start a war I will finish it and then he was also in the news over the past couple of weeks as well over the resignation letter that Iran's foreign minister Javad Zarif gave to President Rouhani now this is just a and one of the reasons why I want to speak about this right now 
is that we had this meeting that took place a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, in Tehran, where Syrian President Bashar al-Assad came over um, to meet with the Ayatollah. He also met with Qassam Soleimani. This meeting was, was directed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. It wasn't directed by the foreign ministry. Foreign ministry didn't even know about it. They were left out of the loop completely. And Javad Zarif, who is this foreign minister, the smiley foreign minister that worked out the nuclear deal with the West, he was left out in the cold completely. And he basically tendered his resignation in protest of that. What am I doing? Why am I the foreign minister? Am I only the foreign minister in title when I have the real foreign minister, Qasem Soleimani, that's organizing heads of state to come and talk, and I'm not even part of these discussions? And so he was furious about this, it seems, and uh, gave his resignation. That resignation was since denied and rebuffed, and he is still the foreign minister. Yet it shows that right now there is some internal dissension in the Iranian regime, where you do have the so-called uh, moderates, these are people that still obviously believe in the Iranian revolution and the goals of the Iranian revolution. They just have a different way about doing it. And they believe that can be achieved while still having a relationship with the West in some fashion. But there's plenty of others that don't. There's plenty of others in Iran that think that the nuclear deal is a waste of time. Why are we slowing down our nuclear program uh, when we're not getting the financial benefits from the nuclear deal? And so it seems to me that Iran has has told Zarif and Rouhani they're on a timeline. They've got a certain time frame. They better deliver. Europe better deliver the funds or else we're out. And here we have Qasem Soleimani, it seems, fulfilling more and more of the role of an actual foreign minister. And he's becoming more popular. He's more public. Uh, right now, he's about... I think he has an approval rating of about 70% in Iran when the, the president himself, Rouhani, has about a 30% uh, approval rating. And so he would have the public backing of the people in Iran. And so he's a popular figure and he's probably somebody we are going to see more of. Look at his actions over the past 40 years and you see how one man was used to aid the rise of of the biblically prophesied king of the south. That's what we're seeing with Qasem Soleimani. That's what we're seeing with the Iranian regime. It has been successful. Like it or not, it has been successful. This is how General Stanley McChrystal finished his piece from uh, just a week ago. He said this, A zealous and action-oriented mindset, if unchecked, can be used as a first force for good. But if harnessed to wrong interests or values, the consequences can be dire. Soleimani is singular, singularly dangerous. He is also singularly positioned to shape the future of the Middle East. Now, the future of the Middle East, he says here, is going to be shaped by this man, or he's positioned to do so. And the Bible says the future of the Middle East, at least in the very near term, has to do with Iran's rise as this biblically prophesied king of the south. King of the south. This is what Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40 says. It says this, And at the time of the end, that's now, shall the king of the south push at him, this is a king of the South, as we talked about, radical Islam led by Iran, where there are individual leaders that are moving this policy forward. And it's going to be a pushy foreign policy. And that's what we see Soleimani doing for the past 40 years. 
an industrious young man that then had his heart burning for the revolution, who loves his troops, who has a passion to fight for the Ayatollah, to support the goals of the regime. He has a very big passion as well for Jerusalem, for taking Jerusalem. He's written at length about that, how that is the goal. And the Bible says that he is going to, or at least Iran is, the Bible doesn't say Soleimani is going to be always be a, a factor, but he has been a factor in Iran's rise so far. It says this, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall pass over, overflow and pass over. And so we've written at length about this prophecy and the verses that follow this go into more details of the territory that this king of the south is going to control and that how this pushy foreign policy of the king of the south is is going to motivate another king to come and destroy it. And so we are seeing right now the rise of the king of the south. We've probably documented that fact at thetrumpet.com and Watch Jerusalem more than anything that we've been writing about for the past 20 plus years, the designation of the King of the South as radical Islam led by Iran and its rise, and every step it takes, every battlefield victory it has, every territory it conquers, we write about it and we show Iran is fulfilling this prophecy and Iran will push the world towards World War III. And the rest of the prophecies that come after it is where the hope lies. I mean, those prophecies in Daniel chapter 11, they're all about, they're all about, in Daniel chapter 12, as well as it continues on, it's all about the coming of the Messiah. It's all about God's rule on earth and what will eventually replace these wretched regimes of mankind that are committed to torture and torment both their citizens and and others around the world that for 6,000 years have been dedicated to fighting one another. Isn't isn't it about enough? (laughs) Haven't we had enough of these kings that come up and fall down and come up and fall down and fight backwards and forwards? The history of man is a history of war. How about a break from that? How about an end? to industrious, smart, capable young men using their talents and abilities for destruction and death. How about using those capabilities for cooperation, not competition? Wouldn't that be the revolution that we want? Well, that that time is coming, and the rise of the, the Iranian regime and its victories on the battlefield is a very clear sign that that time is almost upon us. Now, I really do implore you to request our book entitled The King of the South. It's written by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flory. Um, The very first edition of of that was written uh, about 20 years ago, and it goes through this startling rise of the King of the South and documents how it happened and and the prophecy that is given. And it talks about what else it's going to accomplish in the very near future. And these are prophecies that you can see if they come to pass or not. You can check it with your news. You can see what Iran's up to. You can check where Soleimani's appearing and you'll know. 
how Iran is progressing to fulfill this role of the, of the biblical king of the south. It can also, as you go through this booklet, encourage you about where the rise of that king of the south is leading. Now, if you want to request that book, you can go to watchjerusalem.co.il and hit the literature tab, uh, and that'll list the booklets there, and the King of the South is one of them. Just type in your address, and we'll send it to you for free wherever you are in the world. Or if you would like to just read the PDF straight away, you can go ahead and do that. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening into the program. Please do send your feedback, if you would like to, to our email address, letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. You can also sign up for our weekly email, which is basically a digest of the articles we post at Watch Jerusalem during the week. We send that out every Friday, and that way, if you don't go back to the website every single day, you'll be keeping up with the articles that we have, both on news, prophecy, and also archaeology. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.